Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide that people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Summer in Adelaide, Australia is usually warm and balmy. And in November 1948, it was insufferably hot. Ten miles away, near Somerton Beach Resort, a tall, middle-aged man waited in a back alley. He was wearing a perfectly tailored, crisp brown suit. Thick sweat dripped from his forehead. His eyes darted around him. He listened intently, waiting for the sound of footsteps. And then he heard it. The clicking of high-heeled shoes coming his way. A woman approached him. She appeared to be in her 20s and wore a nurse's uniform. Her wavy brown hair and musky smell of her perfume was just as he remembered. As she approached, she clutched a book under her arm, as if to shield it from onlookers. But the man spotted the manuscript immediately. He asked her in a low voice if it was the right one. The woman confirmed, saying that she looked all over Australia for this particular edition. She handed it over, and for a moment, their hands touched, igniting a spark. Memories of a bygone affair started to resurface. But then it was over. They walked away in opposite directions, without another word. Now wasn't the time for love. They had a job to do. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Somerton Man, the name given to an unidentified individual whose body was discovered on a beach near Adelaide, Australia in 1948. Officially, authorities have never found out who he is, where he came from, or how he died. This time, we'll investigate the discovery of the body, the unusual evidence officials found on his person, and the disparate clues that make this case so abnormal. Next time, we'll explore some of the theories around what caused the man's death and why someone may have wanted him dead. We'll also examine the possible meanings behind a cryptic message, as well as his relationship with the woman who gave it to him. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great. 
and we're sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On November 30th, 1948, at around 7 p.m., a married couple went for an evening walk along Somerton Beach, a resort just outside of Adelaide, Australia. As they took in the soft lapping of the waves, they noticed someone else enjoying the sights, too. A man was propped up against the seawall that separated the sand from the promenade above. His body sat just to the left of a staircase, as if he'd made his way down and collapsed in the first spot he could find. His legs were outstretched and splayed. He wore a neat brown suit, which the couple thought was strange, considering how he was lying in the sand. He was about 20 yards away from them, so they didn't get a good look at his face. As they passed, the man raised up his arm, like he was waving or reaching out for something. Then his arm dropped to his sides, exhausted by the effort. The couple laughed, assuming he was drunk. The husband joked that they should report him to the police, but they didn't. They let him be. After all, he wasn't hurting anyone. They continued on their walk. About 20 minutes later, another man and woman passed by along the promenade. As they sat down on a bench, they noticed the man lying on the sand below. From their vantage point, they could only really see his legs, but he didn't appear to be moving, and he didn't make a sound. A cloud of mosquitoes hummed around him. The woman on the landing remarked how the man almost looked dead. Something about the way his hands were lying struck her as odd. She wanted to take a closer look, but her companion thought they should mind their own business. So they left him alone. It wasn't until the next morning that someone cared to do anything about the man in the brown suit. On December 1st, two jockeys went on an early morning horseback ride along the beach. It wasn't long before they came across the man lying in the sand. The jockeys assumed he was a businessman who'd had too much to drink the night before. They were about to keep riding until they realized that something was off. The color had completely left his face. His mouth hung open, his body was rigid, and his eyes stared vacantly ahead. 
When they dismounted to get a closer look, their fears were confirmed. The man in the brown suit was dead. Soon, a crowd of curious vacationers gathered around the man's corpse. The man appeared to be in the same position as earlier, with his legs outstretched. A half-burnt cigarette rested on his collar, the last one he'd ever smoke. Whispers ran through the crowd about the body's location. Out in the open, in a populated area, there would have been plenty of foot traffic. People must have passed by the man without intervening. It was rather suspicious. Up close, the man seemed like an average Joe. Mid-forties, five foot eleven, gray eyes, reddish-brown hair. He looked professional and put together, with clean, trimmed fingernails and a smooth, shaven face. But 18 of his teeth were missing. Authorities arrived and transported the body to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. The examining doctor determined that he likely died around 2 a.m. that morning, meaning he was still alive when those couples passed by. Another examiner noticed the man had particularly pronounced calf muscles, but despite his athletic physique, he didn't have the calluses or scars typically associated with physical labor. What's more, his toes were wedge-shaped, as if they'd been accustomed to wearing pointy shoes. No one had any idea what this meant, though. And the contents of the man's pockets revealed little about his identity. The coroner didn't find a wallet or an ID, and the man didn't even have money on him. But he did have travel tickets. One unused ticket stub from Adelaide to Henley Beach, which was a nearby town, and a bus ticket stub from Adelaide to Somerton. He had various knickknacks in his possession, but the oddest one was a box of Army Club cigarettes that was filled with a different, more expensive brand of cigarettes. The man's clothing only deepened the mystery. At the time, it was common for people to have their names or initials on the labels of their clothes. That way, they could identify them at the laundry or dry cleaners, and the tags were usually sewn on all four sides. But all the labels of the man's suit were removed. Someone had apparently gone through the trouble of carefully cutting out each one. And there was one more thing of note. His pant pockets had a tear that was re-stitched using a tan-colored thread. The coroner tried to determine the cause of death. Given his age, gender, and suddenness of his passing, it seemed like the most likely explanation would be heart failure. But his heart was in very good condition for his age. The coroner couldn't say the same for his other organs, though. His intestines were in terrible condition. His lungs, kidneys, and liver were swollen with blood. And his spleen, which should have been about the size of a fist, was three times that. In his stomach, the coroner found his last meal, a meat pasty, as well as bloody hemorrhages. These presumably occurred after he'd eaten. In addition, the man's pupils were contracted, and he had a line of dried saliva running down his mouth, like he wasn't able to swallow. But strangely, there were no signs of physical trauma on the outside of the man's body. Altogether, the cause of death seemed evident. He was poisoned. At first, the coroner suspected suicide. He ran a series of toxicology tests. 
He expected to find one of the usual household products that people sometimes used to end their own life. That would be in keeping with the man's reported sluggishness the day before. But all the tests came back negative. There was no poison, at least none the coroner could detect. Stranger still, there were no signs that the man had vomited or experienced any convulsions before he died, both of which would have been typical of poisoning. At the inquest, three medical experts concluded that the cause of death was unknown, but they all agreed on one thing. Whatever killed the Somerton man, his death was not natural and not an accident. Coming up, investigators discover a hidden clue. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to the story. In December 1948, a man was found dead on Somerton Beach near Adelaide, Australia. Several witnesses reported seeing him the night before, but he had no identifying information on his person. It was like he dropped out of nowhere. Step one, police needed to figure out the man's identity. They published a photo of him in Australian newspapers, assuming that sooner or later, someone would come forward to claim him as a relative. They waited weeks, but no one made a positive ID. And not for lack of trying. Intrigued by the mystery, throngs of people visited the morgue to view his face. It wasn't until January 1949, about a month after he was found dead, that three people came forward with a name. They claimed the Somerton man could be Robert Walsh, a woodcutter who'd left home a few months before, reportedly to buy sheep, and never returned. They weren't totally convinced, though. The deceased man's hair color was not the same as Walsh's, and Walsh was around 63 years old. The Somerton man didn't appear to be any older than 50. He certainly didn't have the hands of a man who'd performed manual labor for a living. Upon further inspection, the witnesses retracted their claims. He wasn't Walsh, after all. And this would turn out to be a recurring pattern. Many who came to view the body had family members who'd gone missing. 
After seeing the pictures in the newspapers, they both hoped and feared that the Somerton man might be their loved one. This included a woman named Mrs. P. Bailey. She lived in a town called Mildura, about 250 miles east of Adelaide. Her husband had left in August of that year, bound for Melbourne. She hadn't heard from him since November, about a month before the Somerton man was discovered. With a sense of dread in her stomach, Mrs. Bailey wrote to the Adelaide police, providing a detailed description of her husband. The lead sounded promising, but again, the Somerton man didn't fit the missing man's profile. He was too young. Time after time, people came out of the woodwork claiming to know the Somerton man. But none of the leads went anywhere. In the end, the investigation was always sent back to square one. Eventually, the police broadened their search. They sent the Somerton man's fingerprints to authorities all around Australia, New Zealand, England, the United States, and English-speaking countries in Africa. If he had a criminal record in any of these places, they'd find him. They waited in anticipation, but foreign officials never found a match. So, about a month in, investigators turned their attention to the man's possessions— Since he didn't seem to be from Adelaide, they thought that maybe he might have left luggage somewhere in the area. And they were right. Police put out a notice for abandoned property at nearby hotels and railway stations. They checked dry cleaners, bus stations, and lost property offices. Anywhere someone might drop off a bag. Then on January 14, 1949, just three days after putting out the call, they found something. At the Adelaide train station, someone had left a dark brown suitcase. According to the luggage ticket, it was checked in at around 11 a.m. on November 30th, the same day people found the Somerton man lying on the beach. The first thing investigators noticed was the suitcase's labels had been peeled off. When they opened it, they found a random assortment of items, including handkerchiefs, scissors, a knife, and toiletries for shaving. But it was a spool of thread that caught investigators' attention. It was an unusual brand not sold in Australia, and it was tan, the exact same color and hue that had been used to mend the Somerton man's trouser pocket. This suggested the suitcase did, in fact, belong to the Somerton man. And another very specific item possibly provided insight into his occupation— a stencil brush used on ships to put names on cargo. When police looked into the brush, they found it would have been used by a third officer in the Navy. But officials also found a seemingly contradictory clue item in the luggage. Drafting pencils, like the kind that would be used by an engineer. With none of these pieces adding up, it felt like someone was playing a game with them. There were also a number of clothing items in the suitcase, including shirts, underpants, and a coat. They appeared to be the exact same size and style worn by the Somerton man, all of which had the tags removed, except for three. There was a tie with a name written on the label in ink. Though difficult to decipher, it looked like it read T. Keen. And there was a laundry bag and a singlet with the name Keen printed on them as well. Finally, the police had a possible name for the Somerton man. 
but there was still the question of nationality. Luckily, the code in the suitcase had a unique style of stitching. After consulting a tailor, investigators confirmed that it was a kind only used by American sewing machines, and the coat was fitted, meaning it was customized by a tailor to the wearer's size, so it had to have been purchased in the United States. Investigators asked the station employees if they remembered the man who dropped the luggage off. Unfortunately, since nearly two months had passed, no one did. The good news was, though, they had now a rough timeline of the Somerton man's final day. It looked like he arrived at the Adelaide Railway Station in the morning, then bought a train ticket to Henley Beach. Since he was found clean-shaven, he must have shaved that day. According to records, the station's restrooms were closed that day, so investigators thought that maybe he walked over to the public baths about a half a mile from the station and missed his train. This would explain why he had to purchase a bus ticket to Somerton Beach. Officials finally felt like they were close to solving the puzzle. They searched for anyone who might have gone by T. Keene. They checked records in other English-speaking countries, including the United States, where the man's coat came from. Yet somehow, there weren't any records of a missing person by that name anywhere. At a certain point, investigators began to wonder if they were chasing down the wrong lead. There was something a little too tidy about the name tags. They thought back to how meticulously the Somerton man had cut away his clothing labels. Maybe the tags in his suitcase were red herrings, meant to throw police or someone else off his scent. Whoever the man was, he clearly wanted his identity to remain a secret. By April of 1949, the police were at a loss. It had been nearly five months since they'd found the body, and they were no closer to answers. So they turned to a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide named John Cleland. Professor Cleland gave the evidence another look over. While going through the Somerton man's clothing, he noticed something the police had missed. There was a hidden pocket in the man's trousers, the kind usually used for a pocket watch. It contained a rolled up scrap of paper. When Professor Cleland unfurled it, he found two words inside. Tamam should. The message wasn't in English. Investigators weren't immediately sure what language it was. But the paper looked like it had been torn from the page of a book. The words were printed, not written, in a bold, curving font. And the back of the page was blank. Fortunately, one police reporter recognized the phrase. The words were in Persian and they were from the famous 12th-century poet, Omar Khayyam. Khayyam's most renowned work was a book of verses called The Rubiat. The collection's themes were mostly about enjoying the good things in life while they lasted, drinking wine, making love, and not fretting over the hereafter. An English translation of Khayyam's work became very popular during the early 20th century, especially during World War II. But even in the English version of the book, the last words, Tamam should, were left in their original language. They translated to, it is finished. With that, investigators were once again considering suicide. 
Perhaps the Somerton man had left this one clue behind to let authorities know that he'd taken his own life. Or maybe he'd spent his last hours musing over the poetic meaning of existence. But nothing could be proven, and police couldn't just keep the man's body in the morgue forever. By then, over six months had passed since he died. It was time for a burial. First, though, investigators set to work preserving the one solid clue they had, the Somerton man's face. They had him embalmed, then made a white plaster cast of his head and shoulders. He didn't appear exactly as he'd looked when he was alive. The embalming fluid caused his features to shrivel and shrink, and the skin of his face and neck sagged towards the back of his head from months of laying out in a freezer, but it was the best they could do. On June 14, 1949, nearly seven months after he died, the Somerton man was laid to rest in a cemetery in Adelaide. And he was interred under a concrete vault, just in case police ever needed to exhume him later. His tombstone read, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach. After half a year, authorities still didn't know who the man was, All they had were the cryptic words of a Persian poet torn out of a book. So they decided to track the text down. Coming up, a rare manuscript deepens the mystery. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. The investigation into the Somerton man's identity and death proved to be a case of blind alleys. He appeared to be poisoned, but the coroner couldn't detect any toxic substances. Civilians came forward to identify him, but their stories didn't add up. When the police found a suitcase he'd left at the Adelaide Railway Station, the only name on the clothing led nowhere. Finally, in April of 1949, investigators found a clue they'd initially overlooked, a scrap of paper in the man's pocket. It was torn from a copy of the Rubiyat by Omar Khayyam. In Persian, it read, Tamam Shud, or It Is Finished. Police thought their best bet was to find which version of the book the page was torn from. If they could pinpoint the edition, maybe they could trace it to a rare bookseller. 
That might lead them to where the Somerton man lived before his fatal night in Somerton Park. You'd think tracking down a copy of a popular book would be easy, but investigators soon discovered that the scrap didn't come from an ordinary text. Despite the popularity of the Rubiat, police couldn't find any edition that matched. They found versions of the book with the words in the same font, but the reverse side of the page always had text printed on it. The back of the scrap from the Somerton man's pocket was blank. Police called every library in the Adelaide area. They asked reference librarians to check if their copies of the Rubiat had any pages torn out. But again, nothing. If the scrap was from a printing that was one of a kind, investigators would have to somehow track down the exact book that the page came from, which seemed all but impossible, until someone dropped it in their laps. On July 23, 1949, a man arrived at the Adelaide police station and presented investigators with a copy of the Rubiat. Flipping to the last page, he showed them that the text's final words, to mom should, were torn out. And not only was the reverse page blank, the tear matched the scrap from the Somerton man's pocket. It was the book officials had been looking for, But for those following the case, the real question became, how did this man get his hands on it? Because police wanted to shield him from the publicity surrounding the case, they only referred to him under the pseudonym Francis. We don't know much about who Francis was. But we know his story began the previous December, right after the Somerton man's body was found. He and his brother-in-law apparently decided to go for a drive. Francis kept his car parked near the beach. As they got in the vehicle, the brother-in-law reportedly noticed a book lying on the floor in the back seat. It was a copy of the Rubiat. He didn't make anything of it at the time. Francis didn't either. He assumed that the book belonged to his brother-in-law. After that, the manuscript sat in the car for months, untouched. It wasn't until police published the scrap in the newspapers that the two men apparently made the connection. They looked through it and noticed the last words torn out. It's possible the Somerton man had gone to the beach with a book, torn out the scrap, and then dropped the manuscript in a nearby car's open window. Regardless of how the book came into their possession, investigators inspected it for further clues. Perhaps the Somerton man had written some comment in the margins that would shed some light on his identity. What officials found was another rabbit hole. On the back cover, written in pencil, almost too light to make out, were two telephone numbers. The first number proved to be a dead end, but the second belonged to a young nurse who lived near Somerton Beach, only about 400 yards from where the man was discovered. Police referred to her by her nickname, Justin. They thought that perhaps she was an old flame. But from the moment they started talking to her, it seemed like she had something to hide. She claimed not to know the identity of the Somerton man, but police insisted she view the plaster cast they'd taken of his head. And when Justin saw the face, she stepped back. Her hand clutched her chest, her eyes closed, and she swayed back and forth. 
The chief inspector thought she might faint. But then she quickly composed herself. She told them again that she didn't know who the Somerton man was, and she refused to look at the cast any further. She did reveal one possibly related detail, though. At some point in the last year, Justin returned home from work and was told by her neighbors that a man had been by to see her. She never found out who he was and couldn't or didn't elaborate any further. Still, there was the lingering question of how her phone number got into the Somerton man's copy of the Rubiat. Police pressed her on it until she confessed. Years ago, she'd given the text to a man she'd once known. His name was Alf Boxall. According to Justin, back in 1945, during the war, she worked at a hospital in Sydney, and Alf Boxall was an officer in the Australian Army. But she didn't elaborate on the nature of their relationship or why she gave him the book. So police checked to see if they could dig up any information on Boxall themselves. To their dismay, they quickly learned he wasn't the Somerton man. Boxall was alive. Not only that, but he still had the copy of the Rubiot that Justin gave him. It was a totally different edition from the Somerton man's, and its back page wasn't torn out. It had Justin's name signed on the front page, along with a handwritten line of poetry. It seemed that Justin liked to give copies of the Rubiot with its themes of intoxicating love to the men she liked. With little to go on, police returned to the pencil inscription on the Somerton man's book. There weren't just phone numbers. There were letters written below them. Investigators could barely make out what they said, but when they placed the text under an ultraviolet light to enhance the contrast, they were able to transcribe the message. It was five rows of capital letters, seemingly random, with some of the letters crossed out. The police were baffled at first. Then it dawned on them. It was a code. Though World War II had ended, the globe now faced a new conflict, a Cold War. Countries raced to build up the most powerful nuclear arsenal. The stakes were high, and capitalist and communist nations developed spy networks all over the world to keep tabs on their enemies. The Somerton man's death no longer appeared to be a case of an unidentified man who died by suicide. It seemed to go far deeper than that. Police brought in codebreakers. They sent the book to Australia's naval intelligence, who'd been responsible for deciphering messages during the war. They were the most elite team of decoders in the country. Investigators needed all the minds they could get. After so many false leads, Surely this would be the breakthrough they'd been hoping for. So, in addition to giving the code to the Navy, they appealed to the public. They published the cryptic message in newspapers. Across Australia, people from all walks of life had been enthusiastically following the Somerton Man mystery for months. They were just as invested as the police. With this latest discovery, hundreds of minds set to work. But something was off about this code. The letters didn't appear to be a traditional cipher or arranged in a pattern that simply needed to be unscrambled. It stumped even the experts at naval intelligence. 
They suspected that maybe each capital letter probably represented the first word of a sentence, likely a reference to a line of poetry. But even if they were right, they couldn't figure out what that sentence was. It seemed impossible that so many people could be working on the mystery with no progress. And yet, that's what happened. Time and again, the Summerton case presented investigators with juicy clues, and somehow, none of them bore fruit. In 1958, almost 10 years after the Summerton man was found, police ended their official investigation. The case remained open, but they no longer actively pursued new leads. They never followed up with Justin, the mysterious woman who seemed to know more than she was letting on. For a long time, her real identity remained unknown. In 2007, she passed away. If she had secrets, they died with her. Or at least that's what we've been led to believe. There is definitely more to this case than meets the eye. Over the years, many amateur sleuths have put forward possible theories about who the Summerton Man was. Next time, we'll delve deep into three conspiracy theories about his possible identity. Conspiracy theory number one. The Summerton Man was a spy who was killed using a rare poison. Conspiracy theory number two. The writing in his copy of the Rubiat was a secret code. But maybe the Summerton Man and Justin shared more than just military secrets. That brings us to conspiracy theory number three. The Summerton Man was the father of Justin's son. We may never know the identity of the Summerton Man or why he died, but new technological developments may get us closer to the truth. A lot closer. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Summerton Man, amongst the many sources we used, we found the article The Body on Summerton Beach by Mike Dash extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Anya Bairley and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.